0: We here at Rocky Mountain Red-Handed want to share a stress warning with you. Our cases and stories involve mental illness, sexual assault, suicide, gun violence, and emotional trauma. Please listen with care. If you or someone you know is suffering in the U.S., please reach out to 988, the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. (laughs) the rocky mountains hold many mysteries millions of people enjoy the natural beauty but some come across the hidden dangers this is rocky mountain red-handed i'm melanie here with my dear friend becky the stories we share are remembered by some but forgotten by many let's dive in to rocky mountain red-handed Hello, Becky. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Mel? Hi. I am good. How's your summer going? We just were talking about this. <laughs> it's going fine. I I love my children so much. And also, I'm kind of ready for school to start. Yeah. It's only been two weeks. No, I'm a structure person. Yeah. I like schedules. So summer can be a little difficult. Yeah. yeah. I'm enjoying it though. That's it's right. good. Mm-hmm. We've just Yesterday was rough, I think. I think I texted you yesterday and was like, Mm -hmm. I've hit my wall, Becky. I'm done. (laughs) And it's like first part of June. (laughs) Right. We're only two weeks in. I think we've got like, what, 10 weeks left or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no, summer's good. How's your summer? It's going really well. Good. It's going really well. I just have to ignore my teenagers. That's all you have to do is just ignore your older. I don't even have a teenager yet, but she (laughs) is like a teenager. My 17-year-old is sleeping till about 1.00. Okay. Every day. I woke him up early today at noon. At noon. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There you go. Life is so rough when you're a teenager. It is rough. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, well, we had a message come in to us that we want to share with y'all. Yeah. We've gotten several messages from listeners who have, like, personally known people that we've discussed on the podcast, which Mm -hmm. is so fun for us to hear. It is so fun. We love to hear feedback, and we are so happy to hear. Um, we We heard from a wonderful friend of Nathan Payette's. From our Special Armed Forces episode a few weeks ago. Yeah, Elizabeth, who is a friend of Nathan's, connected with us and we loved hearing from her. Yeah, she was awesome. She also let us know that our research sources were a little off, which we are so happy to correct. Thank you, Elizabeth, for letting us know. Yes, she let us know that Nathan was a load Toad, which is an Armament Systems 2W1. He was not a supply troop. Yeah, he took care of the weapon systems on the fighter craft. Um, he also loaded the munitions onto the aircraft, which is really cool. Yeah. Elizabeth let us know that it is a very well-respected position and a big deal. Yeah. So Elizabeth said she was in BMT with him and in class with him as a, uh, in the tech school, which is really cool. Yeah. She said they were all shocked when he was killed because he really treated his wife like a queen. Which is so heartbreaking, isn't yes. it? Oh. Yeah. So she said he liked everyone would be happy, he like, was so, so happy to help people out. Um, And he was a hard worker and she said that he loved Guam. Yeah. So thank you so much, Elizabeth. We really appreciate that. We want to make sure our sources are always correct. And so if there's something that we say incorrect, we want to make sure that we change that. So absolutely. The research is only as good as our sources and the material. I do my best. Yeah. But I so appreciate Elizabeth reaching out. So thanks again, Elizabeth. Yep. So stay in touch. We love to hear from our listeners. Yes, for sure. Okay, Becky, let's get to today's case. Mm-hmm. Yes, let's do it. So, but before we start, we want to reshare with you all our content advisory. Yeah, this case in particular contains some very violent actions in history. We don't glorify or focus on any of the violence, but we do want to be truthful to what really happened to many of the victims in today's mm-hmm. case. So, please take caution and care. We will give you warnings before we share some of the most violent content from today's story. But, you know, just know if you are sensitive to violent content, please do what's best for you, for sure. Yes. So with that, let's get to it. Let's get to it, Mel. There is a certain sense of mystery surrounding a prison, don't you think? For sure. We know what the purpose is. We know what they serve and the type of, you know, crimes people have committed who live inside of a prison. But at the same time, we really don't know what goes on day to day life within the walls of a prison. Yeah. Do you have a favorite prison movie? So when I think of prisons, I think of prison movies. So you got to say Shawshank. It's so good. Right? Yes. Yes. And like that part with Brooks, like Brooks was here at the end. You've seen it, right, Mel? So heartbreaking. You know what I think of every time is Prison Break. Did you ever watch that TV series? There's and some good looking guys on that show. I remember there were some good looking guys. Yeah. And I think of The Rock with Sean Connery and Nicolas Cage. Any Nicolas Cage movie is like a go to for me. For yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. so Yeah. We've all seen prison movies or prison TV shows, but I don't think that really gives us like an accurate day to day glimpse. For sure. For sure. I don't think the men are as hot in real prison as in Prison Break. Yeah. yeah you never know. So yeah. Prison life is really grim. Yeah. Very grim. So I'll let you know I listened to a lot of Johnny Cash live at Folsom Prison while writing this. I love Johnny Cash. I love Johnny Cash. Love, 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 love. I made my kids all sit down and watch Walk the Wine, too, after listening I to it. I haven't watched that in a long time. I need to watch I'll that watch movie. Mm-hmm. Well, today we are going to share the country's most notorious prison riot. Back in 1980, two cold February days would change the way modern prisons were run in New Mexico and across the U.S. This is what happens when you cage men, both violent and nonviolent, together in cramped, deplorable conditions. And then on top of that, you pin them against each other and take away anything that reminds them of their humanity. This is the story of the Penitentiary of the New Mexico Riot. It's America's most violent prison takeover in history. So let's set the stage. 1980. Becky, what do you think of? Well, let's say you're was born. So I think of birth. Yes. What's you <laughs> Nin- in your head? I mean, it was before my child <laughs> up. I know. We, I like to point that out. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I think of like orange shag carpet, brown for formica and like lots of dark wood. Yeah. <laughs> the top song was Rock With You by Michael Jackson, <laughs> which is a great song. Yeah. Captain Tanil were on the charts with Do That To Me One More Time. Yeah. Kramer versus Kramer with Meryl Streep and Dustin Hoffman was the number one movie. That's a good movie. Think of tube tops, velour tracksuits, ripped jeans, and leotards with leg warmers was all anyone wanted to wear. Yeah, that '80s fashion. Gotta love it. Gotta love it. So strap on your Sony Walkman, and we'll take you back to 1980. 14 miles west of Santa Fe, New Mexico, sits the penitentiary of New Mexico. Built in 1956, it was a well-run and safe prison for over 20 years, until the mid-1970s when things started to spiral. During the mid-to-late 1970s, many states across the U.S., including New Mexico, started passing much harsher laws, which in turn fed more and more prisoners into the correctional system. So back when the prison was built, the architect designed large rooms called dormitories to house the prisoners. Yeah, these dormitories worked great for nonviolent offenders. These men were able to, like, live comfortably with, like, very little consequence and conflict. They were just, you know, hanging out together. Each prisoner was assigned a single-size bed, but with plenty of space in between to give, like, a resemblance of privacy. Yeah. We posted pictures so you can go check them out on your social medias. Um, It doesn't look bad at all. I think it almost reminds me of, like, a summer camp vibe. They slept in the same dormitories, but much of the daytime was spent in the library, recreational programs, therapy, work skills programs and daytime jobs within the prison walls yeah, well in 1980 the men at penitentiary of new mexico did not live a life that resembled this vision the architect had yeah the dormitories with the maximum capacity of 50 were overflowing yeah the dorms housed around 110 men each that's over double the limit so okay i'm not a convict But being packed like sardines with a bunch of strangers would drive me over the edge. I know I'm struggling with all of my kids in the house this summer. (laughs) I can't even imagine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Men were forced to sleep on the floors and every square foot was occupied. Like literally every square foot. Fights would break out because even the aisles were clinged by by like for an assigned space for a prisoner to live. Actually, you can't even you couldn't even walk through the room without stepping on someone. They were loud, stinking with men, crawling with rodents, and really dark. The food was old, stale, moldy, and a lot of times caused sickness. Yeah, men say that even the cockroaches and mice, like, wouldn't eat the food sometimes. that's gross. Prisoners from the late 1970s shared stories of dozens of radios blasting different types of music. Like, they're blaring, trying to, like, compete with each other to be heard. Yeah, there were men laughing, yelling. Fighting, shouting, tensions were really high. After dark, the dorms became even more dangerous. The men were left to fend for themselves. With the overcrowding, violent, repeat offenders were being assigned to the dorms alongside first-time nonviolent offenders. So the guards, usually poorly trained and new at the job, stayed downstairs and drank t- coffee together they were not eager to go in those cramped dormitories yeah don't blame them the guards were terrified really they mm-hmm. knew that they were standing at the edge of an explosion so larry mendoza a correctional officer who survived the riot has said that they were given literally no chain tra- no training whatsoever he was hired given a uniform fingerprinted and then shown throughout the prison and then he was left alone That's all I got. Yeah. Larry said, quote, just to see so many prisoners, I was going to be watching them all. It was terrifying. Yeah. It was not uncommon for huge fights to break out and last until prisoners really just tired themselves out for the night. That is terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Rape was a very common occurrence in the dorms, unfortunately. Before the riot, a visiting warden from out of state publicly reported that the penitentiary of New Mexico was the, quote, filthiest institution I have ever seen. Yeah, this statement was made after an upset that was supposed to have brought positive change several years before the riot. the riot. In 1976, the prisoners at PNM, short for Penitentiary of New Mexico, participated in a work strike. Yeah, they started hoping to have their requests for better conditions heard by lawmakers and officials. Yeah. Instead, Deputy Warden Robert Montoya authorized the use of tear gas against the prisoners. Have you ever been hit with tear gas? I have not. Have you? No, but I worked in a movie theater and someone in the lobby was just playing with a keychain and just like did like a two second, like just a finger on, finger off, Uh, not tear gas, but a pepper spray, which is essentially the same thing. Right. We had to clear out the lobby, like this huge movie theater lobby. And like everyone was coughing. It burns your nose. It burns your eyes. And that was like a teeny tiny pump in a wide open space. So to be gassed in the face, I can't imagine the pain. That would be awful. Yeah, so prisoners, guards, and witnesses have all shared what they witnessed during the strike, violence and humiliation. Yeah, tear gas causes coughing, choking, like you can't breathe because your chest and your lungs tighten up to fight against the chemicals. Mm -hmm. Not to mention burning. Your eyes, your mouth, your nose, everything burns like it is on fire. Your, Your vision becomes blurred and like... Your body won't allow your eyes to open or even your lungs to open. It's horrible. It can also cause internal and external chemical burns. Yeah, that sounds unbearable. Yeah, just a quick warning. The next 20 or so seconds is actually pretty brutal. So skip ahead if needed. The prisoners were hit with tear gas from all directions and then forced to exit down a long corridor. Before they could leave, they were stripped naked and beaten. Naked and bloody, they were herded like cattle down the corridor for around 100 yards. As they tried to run, coughing, blinded, and bloodied, guards beat them repeatedly with their fists and objects, including many with the handles of axes. The incident was nicknamed the Night of the Axe Handles. There were more than 10 grand jury investigations of PNM from 1977 to 1979. That will give you an idea of how violent this place was. Legislatures refused to allocate funds to make changes, and the prison administration didn't see any need for reform. This is the exact opposite of what a prison should be. Penitentiaries are meant to be like a place of solitude. The word penitentiary comes from the word penance, like a monastery. Yeah, so a penitentiary is meant to be a place where a prisoner can sit silent, meditate in his or her own way, and try to transform into a better person. Yeah, instead, when prisoners become overcrowded with felons living like on top of each other with constant interactions, the idea of rehabilitation is thrown out. Yeah, it's completely become secondary to control. Instead of, you know, rehabbing the population, the focus becomes how are we going to control these prisoners in this environment? In the late 1970s, all programs for prisoners were canceled education programs, recreation programs, rehabilitative pro- programs. All programs, these prisoners had nothing better to do than just hate the system and the person next to them. Okay, so time out. I know that our lives are very different from what these poor men are going through, but even just knowing how humans work during the summer with kids, you got to keep them busy. Right. If they stay home and they're bored, what do they start to do? Fight. They fight, exactly. So it's, I know it's comparing. Right. Apples to oranges. Exactly. But that's, but, that's what our minds can compare it But, But yeah, I mean, any human is happier and better off when they're busy, when they feel productive, when they feel like they're accomplishing something. These men were sitting around with nothing to do, cramped on top of each other in deplorable conditions. What did they expect was going to happen? I mean, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. At PNM, the south end of the prison held the multiple dormitories. Uh, made to hold non-violent offenders. The dorms were for only non-violent offenders. But before the riot, they held all types of prisoners due to overcrowding and the lack of the facilities available. The north end of the prison held the cell blocks, which is what you picture like when you think of a prison. Mm -hmm. Traditional cells, like side-by-side down long corridors. Mm -hmm. They were reserved for the most dangerous of the prison population. Of the north end, cell block 3 About 25% of the inmates were considered the disciplinary unit. It was designed to hold 86 prisoners. At the time of our story, though, it was home to over 200 inmates. Again, over double. It was commonplace for many of the guards to use incredibly excessive force. When a new prisoner came to PNM, each man got the same welcome. While handcuffed and restrained, he would get a welcome shove down a long concrete staircase and into a stairwell. With restraints, these men were unable to brace for the fall at all. This was a brutal and painful way to start time at PNM. Not all guards were abusive, but many guards were really operating in survival mode. Mm -hmm. They were scared and untrained, yet this didn't excuse their abusive behavior. It was just a terrible situation on all sides. Yeah. So some guards, like uh, Benito Gonzalez, who was a CO at PNM from 1976 to 1980, said uh, no excessive force was ever used unless it was necessary to control the safety of the prism. That was kind of his philosophy, that he only used physical force when absolutely necessary. Many former inmates can clearly recall multiple guards beating a single inmate. It's safe to say that PNM was not a place you would want to have served your time with in the late 1970s into the 80s. Yeah, the worst of the worst was known as the belly of the beast. Located in cell block 3 were the sensory deprivation cells. They had no light, no sound, no ventilation. Not even a bed or a toilet, just like a hole in the floor for waste. A former prisoner visited the prison after it had been officially closed. He actually became very emotional when he returned to the belly of the beast. I watched this documentary. It's in the source notes. It's from BBC Two. And I can just tell you like the terror in his eyes when he revisited. You can you can tell that it's it's very, very hard to spend any sort of any amount of time there. Yeah. Decades after he had spent time in the belly of the beast, his body shook and tears sprang from his panicked eyes. He said that what he can recall the most was how he constantly scratched at the walls with his fingertips just to feel something. The mental torment and extended time in a cell like this is just incalculable. With each passing year, the number of prisoners who entered the institution climbed. The officials felt threatened and completely outnumbered. So in 1978... With close to 1,300 prisoners housed in PNM, remember the prison was built to accommodate less than 900, officials came up with a plan. It was called the snitch system. Prison officials would probe inmates for information on certain prisoners, seeking anything that they deemed a threat to their control of the population. Yeah, prisoners were forced to snitch. Or, you know, like, hey, I'm sure everyone knows what a snitch is. It's someone who, like, tells on someone else. So prisoners were forced to snitch or the officials would tell the other prisoners that they were a snitch anyway. So it was like a lose-lose situation. This literally pitted inmate against inmate within PNM. By using the snitches, officers were able to extract information to anticipate problems, and they were able to divide, conquer, and rule the prison population. It's a terrible idea, but I can see their point. If they can keep the prisoners mad at each other and not mad at the system... I I can see what they were thinking. Yeah. They really thought that they were in control for a time. Exactly. Instead, they were seriously lighting a powder keg. These snitches were housed in cell block four. This cell block was set aside for, quote, vulnerable prisoners. It's mainly consisted of rapists, pedophiles, and snitches. So the snitch system deflected the hate from the prison and the COs and really put it back on these snitches. Mm -hmm. And they were despised by like every single prisoners cell block five was under construction in early 1980 it really was in desperate need of repair and remodel so the prison officials relocated the inmates that were normally housed in cell block five to dormitory e2 so beck guests who normally stayed in cell block five but were moved to a dorm okay let me take a stab at this knowing our story so far it's going to have to be the worst of the worst, Mel. Am I right? Yes, <laughs> correct. Cell Block Five held the most hardcore, violent repeat offenders that the prison house. They were moved to a cramped dormitory to live with first-time, non-violent offenders. This is so frustrating because you can you can just know what's around the corner on this. Yeah, it, it just seems terrible. like a recipe for disaster, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. So twenty-five percent of the inmates held in dormitories were hardcore dangerous prisoners and the other 75 were practically let's say it weaklings who were happy to serve the hardcore inmates because they were scared to death yeah you know when you have like a big bag of potatoes and then one starts to go bad yeah uh-huh and before you know it it spread to all of the potatoes yeah like i think that that must have been like what it was like in these dorms mm-hmm. i agree also the 75 percent of non-violent prisoners were seriously probably scared for their lives 24 7 365 mm-hmm The hard prisoners were seriously left alone to just run their area of the prison however they pleased. Oh my gosh. So the powder keg was ready and all it needed was a single spark. The spark came on February 1st, 1980. It wasn't uncommon for the inmates to make their own hooch or alcohol. Hooch. Yeah. They brewed it in the toilets of the prison from fermented raisins and yeast. I know your mouth is watering right now, Melly. Oh, so gross. In dormitory E2, a group of inmates started drinking around 8.30 p.m. that evening. Nothing was out of the ordinary that night, just drinking and playing cards. But something just seemed off. There was a crackle in the air of tension. Within two hours, a handful of inmates started talking about how they were tired of how this prison was ran by officials. They were tired of the abuse, tired of the deplorable conditions. They were just done taking the abuse. A prisoner finally said, quote, When they come to count, if they don't lock the door, we're taking over this place. Anybody who stays in bed is going to get hurt. Yeah, that's all the keg needed, a spark, and the fuse was lit. So let's stop and take our first break. Rocky Mountain Red Handed is brought to you by Balance of Nature. I love my Balance of Nature. I take it every morning and it makes me feel so good. I do not like to eat vegetables, so I take my balance of nature to be able to get in the nutrients that I need. Go to balanceofnature.com and use promo code red handed for 35% off your first order. We call it three and three. I take my three capsules of veggies, three capsules of fruits, and it gives me all I need. So that's Balance of Nature, promo code Red Handed. A big thank you to our sponsors. Yeah, so before we get to the riot. I just wanted to add something in quickly. Um, I forgot to share earlier. This score, this story of the riot at PNM, was widely studied. So I was talking to a friend of ours, who I think you're gonna know what I'm talking about, who is a correctional yes. officer. He told me that studying this riot is part of their training and curriculum in school. Is that so interesting? That's really interesting. I would like to talk to them about mm-hmm. that more. They spend a lot of time studying what went wrong and what really could have been prevented in this tragedy. So really interesting that many policies and procedures have been put into place because of this event. So let's continue on with the story. Yep. So at 109 a.m. on February 2nd, three guards began to close the south wing of the prison. Got Captain Royball, Lieutenant Anaya, and Officer Schmidt. COs detested and really feared the night checks. They were dangerous. Prisoners laid all over the floors, yet guards were expected to do a head count in the dark. To speed up the process, they did not lock the doors behind them. This is a major breach of, like, basic security. Yeah. Prisoner Gary Nelson recalls laying in bed and thinking, quote, Boy, I hope they lock the door behind them. Most of the prisoners did not want an uprising. They just wanted to really survive their time at PNM. Mm-hmm. So at one forty a.m., the guards entered the room for the final night count. A single guard, Officer Martinez, positioned himself at the open door. Suddenly, prisoners who looked to be sleeping leapt out of bed. They attacked the guards swiftly and violently. The guards were easily overpowered. The COs were stripped, blindfolded, beaten, and abused. Within minutes, prisoners took four more officers hostage. Officer Curry, Officer V. Gallegos, Officer H. Gallegos, and Officer Bustos. Prisoners started covering their faces to disguise themselves and running throughout the dorm rooms. It was payback time in their eyes. Yeah. At 1.57 a.m., Officer Larry Mendoza and Officer Antonio Vigil were taking a break and having their breakfast and coffee. Yeah, they were working the night shift, so their daily routine is kind of, like, switched from ours. Yeah, day is night and, like, night is day. Exactly, yeah. So as they sat at the break break room table, they began to hear a strange rumbling, they said. They opened the door to the main corridor and they were shocked to see hundreds of inmates pouring out of the dormitories and down the hallway. Officers throughout the prison, including Officer Lucero in the control room and Officer DeBaca out on foot patrol, began to hear the crackling of prisoners on the walkie-talkies. They were being overthrown. I cannot imagine the terror that they felt. Prison officials heard an inmate say into the radio that that he had a shift commander held hostage. The prisoner demanded a meeting with the governor, news media, and Rodriguez, who was the deputy security of corrections, and he was a former warden at PNM, Felice Rodriguez. Yeah, he was not liked, I'll tell you that much. An infirmary tech, Ross Mays was alerted by Officer Hernandez of the radio. He ran and locked the door to the infirmary. He protected himself and seven sick inmates. Amazingly, they would be left alone throughout the two-day ordeal. Mm -hmm. Officer Mendoza and Vigil, the two guards who were having a breakfast break, saw inmates kicking and punching a naked man with a belt around his neck. The naked man on all fours was a fellow guard. Their hearts must have fallen as they understood the situation. The prisoners and guards all ran towards the control center. This heavily guarded room contained every key for the entire prison. So at 2 a.m., a mob of close to 100 inmates charged the control center. They presented the guard as a hostage and threatened to kill him. All that separated them was a couple of panes of bulletproof glass. At 2.01 a.m., a a call went out to the New Mexico State Police. By 2.02 a.m., less than a minute later, the inmates took control of the control room. The glass may have been bulletproof, but it was not fire extinguisher proof. The prisoners grabbed a standard fire extinguisher and easily broke through the quote unquote unbreakable glass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. With that first loud bang, a fire extinguisher actually shattered the window and it became like stuck in the glass panes. The inmates pulled it out and threw it again. That's all it took. Just two blows. Then they used a broken pipe to widen the hole. And with that, they poured through the window. Once the prisoners had the control center, they had gained control of the entire prison. That's all it took. It just took two blows of a fire extinguisher. That's it. From the first jump of the guard back in dormitory E2 to the control center, Mel, it only took 22 minutes for the prisoners to take the prison. That's so crazy. New Mexico Governor Bruce King recalled in his book, Cowboy in the Roadhouse, quote, about two in the morning on Saturday, February 2nd, The emergency phone beside my bed in the mansion rang, startling me awake. It was Chief Martin Vigil of the state police, and my stomach nodded up in apprehension. He said, Governor, we've lost contact with the penitentiary. When when we call there, we don't get an answer. I thought I better alert you. It's possible we have a serious problem. Yeah, the first phone call the governor made after receiving this terrifying phone call? He called in the National Guard of New Mexico, General Franklin Miles. Yeah. Prisoner Michael Colby, who some say was one of the ringleaders of this riot, was released from his single cell by another prisoner. Yeah. He was interviewed extensively in the documentary I watched, which, again, is in our source notes. And again, it's really interesting. If you guys want to hear more about it, I recommend that documentary. Um, He was an inmate at PNM from 1974 to 1980. Then 1983 to 1998 for armed robbery and murders. Sounds like he just couldn't get enough of the prison. As the riots spread throughout the prison, the first thing he did was he headed straight to the prison pharmacy. Colby said he took anything he could get his hands on, Valium, Demerol, and other painkillers. Prisoners tore through the pharmacy and took absolutely everything they could get their hands on. Yeah, I mean, in the documentary, he says just just that's the first place everyone went it's just sure. yeah, which makes a crazy situation even worse. Right at two fifteen a.m., the psych ward was set on fire. The prisoners definitely wanted the psych records to be permanently destroyed. Dwayne Toombs, a prison guard who was luckily on vehicle patrol around the prison yard at the time of the takeover, was able to escape the riot. He told a local newspaper, "It just happened, man. For the past week, we have been getting new guards left and right, but it's a little too late." He shrugged his shoulders and said. Quote, and they only give us $843 a month for this. $843 a month. That's not much. Yeah, that would be about $2,984 per month it, with inflation in 2023. Yeah, and and that's, that's not a lot yeah. for the dangerous situation they're at. Mm-hmm. At 2.15 a.m., state police, Santa Fe police, and National Guardsmen began to gather outside the prison walls. They chose to stand outside the gates for fear that the prisoners would kill the 12 guards inside if they stormed the prison. There would be over 240 armed police and soldiers waiting outside the prison walls. This really is just such a lose-lose situation, right? Mm -hmm. If they storm the prison with force, the officers are really definitely going to be in more danger. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but on the other hand... Like, they can't help the guards or the prisoners who don't want any part of this riot. Their hands are, like, truly tied. Mm-hmm. Yep. At around 2.30 a.m., Warden Jerry Griffin, Deputy Warden Robert Montoya, and Superintendent of Correctional Security Emmanuel Coronas gathered at Tower One to begin negotiations with the prisoners. It's not a surprise to discover that the prisoners were not well organized. Many men claim to be the leader of the riot, which is not a shocker, right? Yeah. The officials tried to negotiate... For the freedom of the COs, but there was no real leadership to really deal Mm -hmm. with directly in the situation. Exactly. According to an official report, the first inmate was killed at 3 a.m. Another warning, there's a pretty brutal death coming up. Yeah, so skip ahead 10 seconds if you need to. This prisoner was commonly known as a snitch, and he worked each day mopping the main corridor. A fellow inmate took a metal pipe, hit him in the head, and a section of his skull broke off and hit the wall. His body, um, prisoners say his body quivered for a few moments and then he died right there in the corridor. Three correctional officers were cornered and held as hostages in cell block three. These men were Raymond Gutierrez, Eduardo Ortigo, and Larry Mendoza. Mm -hmm. They were taken to a storage area and were forced to strip every bit of clothing and turned over their weapons. They were threatened with violence and rape by the other prisoners. By 4am, a a few prisoners, disguised by bandanas and bandages, claiming to be the leaders of the riot, walked outside the prison walls and met with news media. Yeah, again, in this documentary, you can see they literally use, like, gauze bandage to hide their faces, which, I don't know, I thought was a little ridiculous. Some media claim that the prisoners first demanded to, quote, reduce overcrowding, comply with all court orders, and no charges to be filed against inmates for the riot, but That was widely spread in the media, but that is not true. Yeah. The prisoners' first official demand? They demanded pool tables in every dorm and steaks for every dinner. Yeah, I think with this statement alone, we can get a sense of the lack of pre-planning and, like, focused purpose of this riot. Don't you think, Mel? Yeah, that steak and pool tables was, like, the first thing on their minds at this moment. Yeah, it sounds like something my teenager would say. Prisoner Michael Colby said that you could literally smell the fear in the inmates. Most of the prisoners did not want to be there without the guards. Even if they could be violent at times, you know, the CEOs kept order in this chaotic prison. Yeah, and now that all structure was gone, Governor Bruce King told media outlets that hundreds of men had separated themselves from the rioters. These men huddled together outside the prison buildings. They gathered against the perimeter fencing of the west side of the prison past the baseball diamond. The state police stood guard over these men and kept them from the violent rioters. They sought the safety and organization of the prison system, not the chaos and violence of a few dozen prisoners running the show. Yeah, a few of the most vicious prisoners, including Michael Colby, gathered together and formed the, quote, execution squad. They were headed straight for cell block four, the snitches, pedophiles, and rapists. They arrived and entered through the main gate using the keys that they had stolen from the control center. But they could not figure out how to operate the mechanical locks or the individual cell doors. This, though, didn't stop them from their goal. They wanted to kill every man that was in cell block four. So skip ahead if you need to for your mental health. About two, maybe two and a half minutes if you feel that that's what's best for you. For sure. When researching and writing this episode, I'll tell you, I talked with my husband about whether or not to even cover this case. And if I did decide to write the story, if I should take out some of the more gruesome causes of death, I'll tell you as I I decided not to, to edit or to sugarcoat these events. I feel like we do need to honor the history of this. We don't ever want to dwell or focus on the gore or the violence. That's not what our focus is, Mm -hmm. but our focus is to truthfully tell the story of real life events. To honor the victims and to learn from the past. That is our goal and our focus. Yeah. And even though these victims are prisoners, they're human beings. Right. And and they deserve that. So. so even with these tragic details in the case, we hope that we can definitely learn from the past. Yeah. With that said, let's continue. The execution squad went looking for weapons and they found what they were looking for. It was thoughtlessly left by the construction workers in cell block four for the prisoners to take. Yeah, it was an acetylene torch. It can burn up to 5,800 degrees Fahrenheit. That's really hot. That's so hot. This tool-turned-weapon would be used to gain access to each cell and cause the death of several men. Which, I'm so sorry, can I say really quick, why would you leave an acetylene torch out in the middle of a prison? I don't know. I don't know what they're thinking. So the snitches pressed their bodies against the back walls of their cells. They knew what was coming to them. Nine feet is all that separated them from the execution squad and death. It took time as they worked their way down the row of cells. Some prisoners waited for hours as they heard the screams and pleas of their fellow prisoners. Officials could hear the snitches scream out of broken windows for help from the police as the execution squad worked their violent way through the cell block. The execution squad used the walkie-talkies to let law enforcement know what they were doing. So as they used the acetylene torch to, to burn through the bars and wait for the prisoners, the, the prison officials heard every plea, every scream and every blow as they killed the so-called snitches. To kill them wasn't enough. They tortured and mutilated them. One inmate died when a, s- a melted cell bar was driven through his head. The execution squad literally walked from cell to cell deciding who would live and who would die. From 4 a.m. to 7 a.m., Using the torch, they entered each of the cells in cell block 4, and all 16 inmates died. The last man had to wait three hours, knowing that he was going to die a gruesome death. Robert Gillian, a Santa Fe police officer from 1969 to 1991, recalls watching the prison using binoculars. He saw two men holding a fellow prisoner at a window facing the police and military. The men took a torch to the man's head. He screamed in shock and pain. The liquid and gases in his head heated up, which then caused his head to explode. The officers outside witnessed this death. In the words of a witness to the riot, quote, All the forces of hell were unleashed, and it happened right there. Never seen that much rage, intouchable rage and hate. At 525 a.m., the first inmate is released from the prisoners due to injury. He had been attacked by his fellow inmates with a meat cleaver. With him a guard who had been protected by other inmates, was released. He was disguised in inmate clothing. At about 6.45 a.m., something resembling negotiations began. It was still a far cry from a well-organized group, though. Now, if there was a leader in the right, it was Lonnie Duran. He had been an outspoken voice in New Mexico since 1977. He filed a 200-page document commonly known as the Duran Consent Decree with the New Mexico U.S. District Court. This document was filed after the night of the axe handle incident we spoke of earlier in the episode. Yeah. Side note, I think this is really cool. That 200 page document was handwritten. Oh, that's interesting. isn't that interesting? That's a lot of writing. Mm-hmm. The document outlined prison grievances he had experienced. Lawmakers and courts in New Mexico paid little attention to the decree, but now, as a leader of the riot, he you really had their attention. Lonnie Duran had 11 demands, all of which had been laid out in the Duran consent decree already i mean they had already received this information um the prisoners wanted to see improvements in their living conditions some of these de- some of the demands addressed were overcrowding which is not a surprise right use of solitary confinement and they felt like it wasn't being used properly um protesting the loss of education services yeah and the elimination of all programs which i 100 percent agree with them on that in the new mexican newspaper from february 2nd 1980 the day of the beginning of the riot, a state legislator, Rep. Judith Pratt, said, quote, you can't keep people in inhumane conditions without expecting some kind of explosion. I've been expecting this to happen for a long time. I mean, it seems a little late to like <sighs> be making the statement, right? It makes me mad. I don't like that, that she made that comment. Like, yeah. politicians are the best Monday morning quarterbacks, aren't they? I totally agree. <sighs> At about the same time as these negotiations had started, Disguised prisoners carried out a badly beaten guard, Elton Curry. He had been stabbed, beaten, kicked, and abused. He was in desperate need of medical care. Two Santa Fe firemen met with the prisoners when they brought out C.O. Curry for medical care. Fireman George Carrion Jr. was interviewed by reporters at St. Vincent's Hospital and told of his interactions with the rioters. He told the media that the chaotic environment with the inmates and law enforcement were like all yelling over each other it was pure chaos the prisoners disguised themselves with bandanas over their faces and armed themselves with metal pipes wrenches and guns the prisoners demanded that the firemen take off their jackets as they were searched for weapons um luckily they were not armed at the time the prisoners said they had given the injured guard medication for pain but he had immediately spit it out i don't blame him he's probably not trusting the prisoners right As the sun rose up in the sky, 84 prisoners escaped through a prison window and immediately surrendered. They were checked for injuries and escorted off of prison grounds and moved to a holding facility. By 8 a.m., St. Vincent Hospital spokesperson Charlie Cullen told reporters they had admitted four men from the riot. Inmate Ray Viejo, 23, um, had been hit in the school with a meat cleaver. Guard Elton Corey, 49, he had been beaten in his head and shoulders. Inmate Donald Morris, 38, apparent drug overdose by himself or possibly drugged by other prisoners. Um, Guard Mike Hernandez, 25, had lacerations and various cuts on his chest. At 8 a.m., 50 New Mexico National Guard arrived at the prison to assist law enforcement. Soon after their arrival, another 20 prisoners escaped and ran towards law enforcement. They surrendered immediately. Things were really getting tense with the clock ticking and many correctional officers unaccounted for during the riot. Luckily, some of the officers were actually fed and protected by inmates inside the prison walls. Two more officers were brutally beaten and raped by rioters. They were carried out on blanket stretchers by inmates. Seven guards suffered severe injuries. One official said, quote, One guard was tied to a chair. Another lay naked on a stretcher, blood pouring from his head. At 8.58 a.m., Governor King spoke to prisoners by phone. He promised not to storm the prison. If hostages were kept alive, the prisoners agreed to give the facility back by mid-afternoon. The entire state of New Mexico held their breath. Hoping to keep the discussion going, Governor King arrived at PNM at 9.15 a.m. But as we mentioned before, there was no clear leader or spokesperson for the prisoners. The scene was pure chaos. Yeah. At 12 p.m., a different inmate spokesperson demanded to see media members and threatened to decapitate prisoners if he didn't see them immediately. During the afternoon hours, 50 more inmates surrendered and safely left the prison grounds, escorted by the National Guard. Yeah, let's take our last break and say a big thank you to our sponsors. Give your brain the natural nutrients, blood flow, and neurotransmitter support it needs to make the fight with depression an unfair fight. Get stronger daily with Whole Supplement. Build momentum each day with the Whole Depression Relief Stack, the three targeted daily formulas that will help you feel, enjoy, and progress again. So, how do you take the whole stack? One, wake up formula. Take wake up in the morning with a glass of water to kick off your day with motivation and energy. Number two is the daytime formula. Take daytime around lunch to ensure you have the focus, mood, and productivity to power through the day. That sounds like something we all need. Number three, the sleep it off formula. Take sleep it off about an hour before you plan to go to sleep for amazing rest and brain support that will consistently set you up for better days. I've experienced depression since I was a teen. I try to do my best to take care of my mental and emotional health and manage my anxiety and depression. But even with medication, I can find myself struggling some days. I started taking whole supplement just a couple weeks ago, and I already feel like I am giving my body the armor it needs to win the fight each and every day. The ingredients in whole supplements have been used for hundreds of years. They just haven't been put together this way to help people struggling with depression. There are no proprietary blends and no hidden ingredients in whole supplement. So here's Adam Steer, founder and CVO of Whole Supplement started Whole Supplement with a mission to help others who, like myself, have struggled with finding relief from depression and anxiety. Our number one goal is to empower everyone we can to make meaningful progress every single day. So now is the time to take care of your emotional and mental health. During the pre-launch offer, you can receive the entire Whole Depression Relief stack at 15% off. Go to wholesupplement.com and use code Rocky Mountain. Again, go to whole supplement.com and use coupon code Rocky Mountain. Simplify your fight with the whole stack from Whole Supplement. Thanks again to our sponsors. So let's get back to our story. Inside the prison walls, the situation continued to deteriorate by the minute. Prisoners set fire to the gymnasium and other areas of the facility. CO Larry Mendoza was one of the three guards who were held hostage in cell block 3. He later told media that the walls were blackened with soot. Yeah, they coughed and struggled for oxygen due to the heavy smoke that billowed into the dorms. The fire sprinklers were activated throughout the prison and by early evening the prison had over a foot of water on the lowest level up structure. Human remains floated in the water. The hallways and corridors of water also held broken glass, makeshift weapons, random debris, syringes, feces. It was bad. With the fire spreading within the prison, the three guards held in cell block 3 were moved by the prisoners to cell block 6. Yeah, so one more warning for you. Skip ahead another 30 seconds if you feel that's what's best for you. Yeah. C.O. Mendoza recalled this moment as the most terrifying he experienced there in the prison. Yeah. A prisoner walked into the room where the guards were being held. The prisoner said something to him. He said, decide which of you get this, and held up something in his fist. At first, Sio Mendoza didn't realize what he was holding. He thought maybe like something from the kitchen? No, it was a head of a prisoner, Paulina Paul. He was an inmate assigned to cell block four due to cognitive abilities. Paul had a mental age of 12 years old. He had been decapitated with a shovel. At 6.50 p.m., Another body was brought out to police by prison inmates. The bulk of the rioters were ready to surrender. As negotiations continued throughout the evening, another beaten guard was released at 1125 p.m. With all involved tired and mentally drained, at 107 a.m., negotiations were put on hold until 8 a.m. the next morning. By morning, officials released a headcount of the prisoners who were outside the prison walls. 800 total had been evacuated. At 10.55 a.m., another guard escaped with the help of several inmates. The beheaded body of Paulina Paul, the inmate with the cognitive delay, was brought out to officials at 12.34 p.m. On Sunday, February 3rd, two so-called leaders, Jack Stevens and Michael Colby, who were members of the Aryan Brotherhood, spoke to the media and threatened the lives of the last two guards. But instead, at 1.26 p.m., less than an hour after their statement, the guards were taken to the grass outside the prison yard. 36 hours after the riot began, SWAT teams, state police officials, Santa Fe police, and National Guardsmen entered PNM and secured the facility. The riot was over. The nightmare was finally over. But in another way, the nightmare had just begun as officials entered the prison walls to see with their own eyes what was left. A fire had been set in the gymnasium to burn a pile of corpses but the fire had burned out of control and spread throughout the buildings. A fire continued to burn in the office of Dr. Mark Orner, who was the prison psychologist since 1974. Shortly after the riot, Dr. Orner left his employment at PNM. A fire had been set in the prison Protestant chapel. The priest, nicknamed the Axe Handle, was not beloved by the prison population. Yeah, he had participated in the physical abuse along with prison officials during the notorious night of the axe handles and the prisoners had found a little revenge during the riot by burning down his sanctuary that is so odd to me that a priest would participate it's weird the catholic chapel located next door to the protestant chapel in the prison yard was left untouched the prisoners had great respect for the catholic clergy thankfully the prison library was left untouched not surprisingly the prison records department was reduced to ashes 34 inmates died, and over 200 were treated with serious injuries. Some inmates died from drug overdose, but the majority were killed by the hands of their fellow prisoners. Of the murdered men, 16 were housed in protective custody. Those men would be the labeled snitches and child molesters. The identification of the dead was not an easy process. Prison guards, who knew the prisoners very well, assisted in the identification of the dead. Yeah, many couldn't even recognize the faces of the deceased. They were too brutalized and mutilated. So one last warning. Skip ahead 15 seconds if needed. I promise this was the last one. One of these men was a young prisoner named Mario Yersot. A week before the riot, he had been gang raped by a group of prisoners, and he wanted to press charges. Because of this, he had been moved to cell block 4 for protected custody. He was found after the riot, hanged by a rope, His throat had been cut ear to ear, and his genitals had been removed and stuffed into his mouth. He was in PNM for shoplifting, and he ended up losing his life in this horrific way. Shoplifting, it's, it's just heartbreaking. During the riot, a prisoner crudely carved into a wall a simple sentence. Quote, God bless this room and forgive us. Amen. How many prisoners watched in horror as violence encircled them? How many prisoners asked God to save them from the brutality that surrounded them? An inmate told the press, I never realized that people could be so inhuman. I heard people being tortured to death feet from me, screaming and crying and pleading for their life. Thankfully, none of the 12 correctional officers were murdered. They all survived the nightmare. That's incredible. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, seven of the COs suffered serious injuries, including sodomy and severe beatings. Larry Mendoza did not realize how bad of shape he was in until he tried to sleep the first night when he got back to his own home. Yeah, constant nightmares, waking up and screaming in terror happened every night for years. C.O. Mendoza has injured daily PTSD over the years. Yeah, Jeff Bingaman, the New Mexico Attorney General, was commissioned to produce a report of the riot at PMN. The 200-page report concluded the majority of the prisoners had tried to flee the violence, and only a very small group of men perpetuated the brutality. The report also concluded that there were forms of control in place that made already callous men even more violent. Systems that had been put in place, such as the snitch system, dehumanized both the kept and the keepers. Members of the riot investigation team who worked with Attorney General Bingaman Endured trauma after working on the report. After gathering first-hand accounts and viewing the photos, they reported nightmares, flashbacks, emotional, and physical repercussions from their research. Yeah, you really can't unsee um, certain things in life. Mm-hmm. Beginning in the 1970s, Dwight Duran had fought for prison reform by filing a handwritten federal lawsuit. We mentioned this earlier in the podcast. Yep, the Duran consent decree. Yeah, it took almost 20 years to see real reform in New Mexico. Duran's lawsuit became the template for modern correctional systems. His desire to see true change in prisons stemmed from losing his closest friend in prison, who was beaten to death by guards. It may have taken 20 years, but after the riot, legislators appropriated more than $100 million to build new prisons and implement reform programs. Attorney General Bingaman, who later became a U.S. Senator, wrote in his report, quote, "...throughout its history, the penitentiary of New Mexico has suffered from neglect." The New Mexico prison has always waited at the end of the line of public money, and elected officials have turned their attention to the ugly problems of the penitentiary only when the institution has erupted in violence and destruction. Lack of space, inadequate programs, and understaffing have all been part of the prison's tradition. Bigaman wrote in his report, Not everything that was destroyed could be completely fixed. Yeah, quote, The penitentiary can be repaired, and even a bureaucracy can be repaired. But the men who day by day for year after year have to look over their shoulder for the man with the knife who lack enough opportunity to make decisions in their daily lives that they forget how to decide. These men cannot be repaired. They are forever broken by a system designed to correct them. That is such a powerful statement, isn't it? Yeah, I agree. 17 of the 33 homicides were not prosecuted. Most ended with plea bargains, with the result of little to no additional time added to their sentences. To quote a survivor, This is what happens when a prison breaks down. This is what happens when you take violent men and treat them like dogs, less than dogs. Yeah, and all that was needed was a spark to light the dynamite at PNM in February 1980. The riot took the lives of 33 inmates. Michael Briones, 22 of Albuquerque. Lawrence C. Carden, 24 of Las Cruces. Nick Coca, 30 of Taos; Richard J. Fierro, 26 of Carlsbad. James C. Foley, 19 of Albuquerque. Donald J. Gossens, 23 of Farmington. Philip C. Hernandez, 30 of Clovis. Valenty Armino, 35 of Albuquerque. Kelly E. Johnson, 26 of Albuquerque. Stephen Lucero, 25 of Farmington. Joe A. Madrid, 38 of Albuquerque. Ramon Madrid, 40 of Las Cruces. Archie M. Martinez, 25 of Chimeo. Joseph A. Maribal, 24 of Alamogordo. Ben G. Marino, 20 of Carlsbad. Gilbert O. Marino, 25 of Carlsbad. Thomas O'Meara, 25 of Albuquerque. Faberto M. Ortega, 25 of Las Vegas, New Mexico. Frank J. Ortega, 20 of Las Vegas, New Mexico. Paulina Paul, 36 of Alamogordo. James Perrin, 34, of Chaparral. Robert F. Cantilla, 29, of Carlsbad. Robert L. Riviera, 28, of Albuquerque. Vincent E. Romero, 34, of Albuquerque. Hermen D. Russell, 26, of Waterflow, New Mexico. Juan M. Sanchez, 22, of Bronzeville, Texas. Frankie J. Cedillo, 31, of Santa Fe. Larry W. Smith, 31, of Kirkland. Leo J. Tenerio, 25, of Albuquerque. Thomas C. Tenerio, 28, of Albuquerque. Mario Urioste, 28, of Santa Fe. Danny D. Waller, 26, of Lubbock, Texas. And Russell M. Werner, 22, of Albuquerque. May these men seek peace and forgiveness in the next life. Our thoughts and prayers go out to all of those who were affected by this tragic event, namely the brave correctional officers. Mm For sure. In November 1998, the penitentiary of New Mexico was permanently closed. It never fully recovered from the riot in 1980. The prison building and yard are now used as a movie set. Mel, have you seen... That's interesting. I know. Have you seen The Longest Yard? I have, yeah. Yeah, Adam Sandler, Chris Rock, Fort Reynolds. Yeah, it was filmed there. The prison is also a tourist attraction. On the first weekend of the month between May and October, tourists can pay $15 for a guided tour named Respect Our Past to Create a Better Future. Would you take that tour, Mel? Oh my gosh, that would be really interesting, but also really creepy. Maybe we should go do that together. Would you do it? I I think in the right like situation, I don't think I'd be like, come on kids, let's well, go to New Mexico. No, <laughs> I wouldn't take my kids. But if we were to do a Rocky Mountain red-handed road trip. Okay. Yeah. There's I would I would go see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think after that episode, we need a really, really great redemption story. What do you think? I completely agree. That was a heavy, heavy episode. Um, Mel, ask and ye shall receive. I have a fantastic story for New Mexico. Yeah, don't know where in New Mexico, we got you. Yeah, this story is absolutely amazing and it will restore your faith in humanity. So, a hero teen was rewarded by his community after he returned $135,000 he found sitting next to the ATM. Yeah, Jose Ramirez was helping his grandfather buy socks online, which is adorable by itself, okay. right? Mm hmm when he noticed he needed to add funds to his account. He drove to a nearby ATM to make a quick deposit when he noticed the clear plastic bag of money. One hundred and thirty five thousand dollars in 20s and 50s. They weren't even big bills. It was accidentally left by a worker who was supposed to fill the ATM. I think that guy probably got fired. That's a big mistake. Mm-hmm. He was shocked to see this. Mm-hmm. After taking a moment to collect himself, he did the right thing. He called the police. Officer Simon Drobic, the spokesman for the Albuquerque Police Department, said, quote, This money could have made an incredible amount of difference in his life if he went down the other path, but he chose the integrity path and did the right thing. I've seen a lot of stuff in 21 years, but this was unique and refreshing for the department and city. Yeah, so cool. Mm -hmm. Jose was studying criminal justice at Central New Mexico Community College at the time. The police chief invited Jose to apply for a job as a public service aide for the department while still enrolled in school. He's been called a hero by many in his community, though he doesn't feel like he's a hero, and he's been showered with love by local businesses. He's received gift cards, gifts, and season tickets for the University of New Mexico football. He was also given a $500 scholarship from the electric company. That's so cool. Yeah. This happened right around Mother's Day, and Jose's mom told the media that it was, quote, the best mother's day gift i completely agree with that yeah to have your kid have such integrity to Mm -hmm. do such a thing that's Mm -hmm. such an amazing story how cool i agree i mean i mean like we've all been tempted and we know the feeling uh the draw to take something that isn't ours right we've all been in that situation i mean he could have even just like taken a couple bills but Mm -hmm. he didn't like so amazing it's amazing way to go jose good job new mexico so don't forget to share the story with your friends online yes and check out our socials you can follow us on facebook our instagram is at rocky mountain red-handed and our twitter is rmrh podcast so make sure that you follow us there Mm -hmm. we'll be back next wednesday so until next time keep your hands clean